Jesus says, pray this prayer. I hope that as we move uh, through this first part of 2022, that we're growing more and more familiar, we're developing, I will put it this way, sort of a relationship with this prayer, growing comfortable with this prayer. Jesus says, say these words, pray this prayer, pray it together, pray it often. We pray these words. But somewhere along the way, I fear that the prayer and saying it over and over again at every worship service has gotten a bad rap. You know, I mentioned before at the beginning of this series that I used to say to students in the classes that I taught on worship that ritual is not a four-letter word. It, literally, it's not a four-letter word. You can, <laughs> R-I-T, some of you are going, wait, R-I-T-U-A-L-L. It's not a bad word. It's not a bad thing. I like to think of ritual as a friend. Meet my friend Ritual. We call him Rit for short. No, just kidding. Somewhere along the way, I fear that my friend Ritual got a bad rap. Maybe he was hanging with the wrong sort. Maybe we perceived him as keeping bad company. Maybe he wandered off at some point in the past down some dark alley, and so we think, um, shady dude, Ritual. But not so much. This prayer is a gift. It's God's gift to us. Of all the witness of Scripture and the beauty of its diversity, the stories that it tells, the instruction that it gives, the God that it points to and reveals, there is this one place where Jesus himself wraps this package up and hands it to us as a gift saying, take this. Take these words. It's beautiful, this gift. When we gather together every week to say, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. We are opening ourselves up again to the presence of God in each and every moment. The God who is transcendent above all things, is as near as a father, and is in every moment. He's here. He's here now. Amen. If we open our sensibilities to receive the God who's present in every moment, this prayer, these words, are a gift. The God who says to us now, say this over and over again, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, here and now, Remember where your allegiance lies. It's a gift to us. Do you know why? Because our allegiances are divided. And we forget to whom we belong, to what we belong. The God who loved us and created us says, here are these words. Say them together over and over again. It's a gift. Give us this day our daily bread. Enough for today. Say these words. Remember the God who provides, Jehovah Jireh, who in your deepest need and in your deepest longing provides in abundance what you need for today and trust Him. Trust Him in every day to provide. Remember that you are not sufficient 
on your own, in and of yourself, say these words. It's a gift. This prayer is a gift. We are formed and transformed by the prayer. We live with it intimately. And if you're going to develop a relationship with something so precious that Jesus offers to us, do you engage it once and then say, oh, well, maybe in six months we'll come back to you again? No. We live with the prayer week in and week out as we gather together in the name of Jesus. We live with the prayer day by day. It's a precious gift that forms us and transforms us in every way. Ritual, my friend, ritual is our friend, God's gift. And so you'll see the words on the screen. And we're going to stop now. We're going to take a moment to center ourselves in these words and to speak them aloud together as the Lord Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Forgive us as we forgive. These are the words we pray next. Forgive us as we forgive. Today I want to invite us to hear two stories. I tried to think of better ones, more clever stories that I could share, more engaging, the kind that would keep you at the edge of your seat. Riveting stories, ones you've never heard before, but in hearing them you are just drawn into the story, swept up in the narrative. But I could come up with no better two stories than those that Jesus has already told us. They may be familiar to you. To others, they may not be so familiar. But my hope and prayer today as we visit these stories again is that we will see them in a new light. We will see them through the words of this prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus told this story. There was a father who had two sons. An older son and a younger son. The story's told in Luke's gospel in the 15th chapter. And on one, one day, the younger of the two sons came to the father and said, Father, Give me my share of the inheritance. You've heard this story? How many of you have heard this story before? Give me my share of the inheritance. Wait a minute. Do you realize how audacious that request is? When does a son receive his father's inheritance? When his father dies. 
Uh, pops. I'm tired of waiting around on what's coming to me. Can we just get on with it? Does he care about the relationship or about what the relationship gives him? Has he objectified the relationship? It's insulting. Everyone who hears this story told in its culture, in its time, when they heard that the son made this kind of request, would gasp. Not a one of you gasped when I said that a moment ago. But I'm telling you, it's an absolutely audacious request. It's a disgraceful thing for a son to say to his father. If you stop to think about it. And the amazing thing, the even more audacious, baffling thing, is that the father, in the face of that question, agrees to grant the request. Can you imagine that? The appropriate response (laughs) would not have been to grant the son's request. And yet he does. He gives it to him freely. He doesn't deserve it. It's not his. It's not his then. But he gives it to him. And so the son receives the father's inheritance ahead of the father's death. And he takes what the father has given to him. And I just want to, for a moment, unpack this a bit to say that you think, well, through our lens, we might think, well, the fathers work hard to amass that inheritance. Right? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's been handed down to him as a gift of grace from generation to generation to generation to steward and to care for. He receives the gifts, and what does he do with it? Well, the story goes like this. He wandered off to another country, to a foreign land, and he squandered that inheritance, that precious gift that isn't even really his, that he doesn't even really deserve in the first place. He squanders it on, the text says in some translations, wild living until it's all gone. And he's destitute. And he takes whatever job he can find and he hires himself out. And the next thing you know, he's out feeding the swine and he doesn't even have anything for himself. And even the food that he's feeding to the swine, the pigs, looks appealing to him. And he stops one day and comes to his senses and says, wait a minute. Even my father's hired servants have food to eat. So he comes up with a plan and he comes up with a speech A plan and a speech. Get this, Matthew 15, verse 18. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, here's his speech he's planning to make. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I just want the gravity of that phrase to sit with you for a moment. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father, it says. Makes his way back from that faraway place, that foreign land, and he knows what to expect as he approaches his father's house because he's seen this play out before. His father's 
uh, place is it within the context of a community, a village. That's why we think, you know, it's a city. Uh, and if you go down three blocks and turn left, you get to the father's house. No, he lives in the context of a village. Relationships are tight. People know each other. They love each other. They've known each other for generations. They care for each other. They provide for each other. And they honor each other in this culture. Community, not just family, but community matters. And when someone disgraces the family, they don't just disgrace the family, they disgrace the community. He knows how this works. He knows that as he approaches the outskirts of the village, the children who are playing out on the outskirts of the village will recognize him. They will see him coming, and they will know who he is, and they will know the shame that he has brought on his father, and they will know the shame that he has brought upon his village. And they will tease him, and they will taunt him, and they will pick up rocks and chant and throw them at him as he makes his way back into the village towards his father. He knows that's what he's going to face. He's got his plan. He knows what it means. He's prepared his words. He knows what they are. Only, get this, as he makes his way back towards his village, the children are all out there playing. But his father, but his father, who's been looking for him day after day after day, hoping beyond hopes that one day his son might come to his senses. His father, who's been longing and praying, never missing a day to look out in the distance and see if there might be someone approaching and that if that someone might possibly be the son that he's lost. He sees him coming out there in the distance. And before his son can encounter what he should have encountered, do you know what he does? He gets up from his place and he runs to meet his son. Okay, once again, think about this. Do you know what it means that he runs to meet his son? Do you know what he's wearing? Not blue jeans and fancy stylish blue sneakers. He's wearing traditional clothing. It's a long uh, gown. Now, uh, uh, women are going to have to help us men comprehend this. But if you're wearing a gown like that and you try and run, how's that working out for you? In a dress, full length. Not so good. Do you know what you have to do to run? You have to reach down and gather that up, and pull it up a little bit here. Gird it up a little bit so that your legs can move and you can run. Do you know what that means? It means that he exposes his legs to run meet his son. And in that culture, there is nothing more shameful and disgraceful that a man can do than that. You see what he's doing? The shame that should have been his sons, he intervenes 
And he takes that attention and that shame on himself. And he runs to meet his son. And when he greets him, having taken on that shame, he throws his arms around him and in great celebration embraces him and in great love. And the son steps back and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Father, I've got a speech for you. This is verse 21, if you're following along. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stops him. Now, I don't know if you picked this up, but that's not the end of his prepared speech. His prepared speech was what? Verse 18. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. That's what he intended to say. So he begins his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can say, just treat me like one of your hired hands, the father stops him and says, my son. (laughs) Get that hired servant business out of here. You're no hired servant. You're a son. He clothes him with the clothes that a son wears. He owns him with the ring that a son wears. He loves him with the love of a father for a son, not in the transactional relationship of a hired hand. I'm telling you, this story that we're so familiar with, this story is absolutely audacious. No one would imagine a scenario or a story playing out like this. No one who hears it would think of it happening that way. It's audacious, which is the point that the love of God for his sons and daughters could be so great. What's the title of this story? Someone help me out. What do we call this story? The parable of the prodigal son. Wrong title. (laughs) It's not about the prodigal son, is it? What's it about? (laughs) It's about the amazing, loving mercy of a God who will go to extraordinary lengths to forgive. Jesus told another story about another man. And I'm not sure how this happened or exactly how this played out, how he got in this situation, but he's in way over his head. Way over his head. It's found in Matthew 18, and it's in response to the, to the reading that we heard read uh, this morning in our worship. I'm wondering if you've ever been in a situation like this where you, you're not sure how you got there, but here you are. It seems there's no way out. And your every thought is consumed about the situation that you found yourself in. And the more you think about it, the more anxious you get. And the more anxious you get, the more you can't help but think about it. And the more you think about it, the more anxious you get. 
And that cycle just drills you down into a dark place. I'm not sure how he got there, but the story goes like this. It, 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 I imagine it started out with something small, like most of these situations do, something small. Just a little loan to get him by. He'll pay it back, of course. It's not much. But things snowball in unexpected ways, and that money is gone, and he digs the hole a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper until it's so deep he doesn't know how he's going to get out. It'd be fine if it was just affecting him, if it was just his problem to deal with, but the truth is, he's dragging his whole family down with him. When the stock market crashed in the Great Depression, there are countless stories of those who could see no way out, for whom things became so dark and desperate and despair so intense that they would rather just end it all, and they did. There are similar stories like this from what we called more recently the Great Recession in 2008. Snowballs like that on us. We never intended to end up there, but we do. And when it all comes down and he's called to account, there he is, realizing his own deep, dark, desperate situation and that um, he's cast this shadow, this despair over his entire family. I'm wondering what the kinds of debts that we carry are that cost you so much like that. In the story, it's about money lent. But you know, it's not just money lent. Wondering if I were to stop in the sermon for a minute and say, in the story a minute, and say, I wonder what the debt is that you carry. Because for some of us, perhaps most of us, it's not the debt of money. But hey, listen up, folks. It's the debt of something. You carry it. And it gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger until it consumes you, and there's no way out. And at some point, the debt gets called. And in this story, sure enough, the debt gets called. The man who had lent him money says, pay me back what you owe. Now. We've been through this before. Time's up. The debt is due now. Time to pay the piper. I was hoping you guys would, you know. Take time to... It's now. And he falls to his knees because he knows what this implication is. He can't pay the debt. He can't possibly pay the debt. And the consequences of that are grave. They're grave for him. They're grave for his family. They are grave. This is the moment he's been dreading that has kept him awake at night and is the first thing he thinks about in the morning. This is that moment. And so he falls on his knees in front of the man. And he falls on his face. He can't possibly look at the man. And he pleads for mercy. 
And in Matthew 18, it doesn't tell us exactly what all was involved in that speech, but I guarantee you, he had rehearsed it too. He poured himself out with every bit of emotion and every bit of passion. He was pleading for his life, for his family's life. And astonishingly, in that moment, the man who stands before him says, get up. Get up. Stop. Stop. Stand up. Look at me. He looks him in the eye and he says, it's forgiven. What you owe, it's forgiven. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's unheard of. Never in his wildest dreams could he ever have allowed himself to imagine that scenario playing out. Look at me. Stand up. Look at me. Look me in the eye. It's forgiven. I'm imagining that he turns at that point and in great joy stumbles his way back home to his family who knows every bit of what's playing out and walks in and says, you are not going to believe this. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. What? Well, what happened? I don't know. What did you do? What did you have to bargain away? What did you have to promise? Nothing. It's forgiven. Unbelievable. That mercy, that grace propels him forward. He's lighter. Can you imagine how well he slept that night? <laughs> and he gets up the next day and he goes about his business. The freedom, the weight that's lifted, the, the, the life that comes back to his eyes and his speech and his demeanor. He has life and hope, and a future he's been forgiven. And then it says, wait a minute, let's stop right there. What's this story about? Is the name of this story, if you look in your Bible, it's going to have a title of the story. It's probably going to say that this is the story of the unmerciful servant. But that's not what this story is about. This story is about the merciful God who forgives in unexpectedly, unexpected, extravagant ways, whose love is so great that he forgives freely, completely. That's what this story, can you imagine a God like this? That's what the stories say. Both the stories say. Can you imagine a God like this? That you serve a God like this, that a God like this loves you, even you. Can you let yourself believe that you can be loved like that? This is not the God 
measuring out punishment so that you can atone for your sins. This is not the God of penance or who's saying, because you've been so repentant, I'll reduce your sentence. That's not what happens. That's not the God in this story. That's not the God who, ser- who we serve. That's not the God who loves us. The stories are about, are about the extravagant mercy of a God who forgives freely, who forgives freely, who forgives freely. Listen, here's the twist. Both of these stories have a part two. In both of these stories, there's a part two. So for the second half of the sermon, no, I'm just kidding, it won't be that long. (laughs) When that younger son came home, guess what? His older brother noticed. He saw what was going on, and here's the quote. He became angry and refused to go in to the celebration. Did he think they were celebrating his brother? Did he think that party was about the brother? That's where he missed it, right? He saw what was happening. He thought this was about something his brother had done or that his brother got that he didn't get. And he was angry, resentful, and he refused to go in. And the father turns to him as he says, what's up with this? His father says to him, my child, here's the words, my child, you are always with me. And all that I have is already yours. And when that man forgiven the debt that was literally choking the life out of him, ran into an old friend who owed him a few bucks. Something triggered the old, unforgiven man was triggered. And he reached out and he choked him. Just a few bucks. And he said, pay me what you owe me. Pay up now. And when his, uh, that man, the man who had been forgiven so much in the first instance, when news got back about that, here's what he said. He said, wait a minute. Shouldn't you have mercy just as I had mercy on you? The stories, both of them, are about the extravagant mercy and grace and forgiveness of God, the God whose love is unconditional and never-ending and never-ending, who extends His mercy to us in surprising and gracious ways. But the stories, both of them, are also about how hard it is for us to love like the God who loves us. How hard it is for us to believe that that love is big enough for us so that we can love that way too. To forgive like the God who forgives us. Listen to the words Jesus gives us. I want you to pay attention. You'll see this on the screen. To the structure of this prayer. 
that we're living with. It's set off in paragraphs on purpose in this way. Our Father in heaven, holy. Your kingdom, your will, here and now. Give us, forgive us, lead us. Yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. Do you see the structure? Do you see the parallelism? Your kingdom come, yours is the kingdom. Do you see what's in between these three things? Give us daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive. Lead us, deliver us. Do you see that? What's in the middle? These three things form the center of the prayer that we receive as gift and we live with. These three things. And notice on the screen what's at the very center of the prayer. Forgive us. We forgive. Forgive us. We forgive. We pray, forgive us, not only because we need forgiveness, but because we forget we've been forgiven. Or we refuse to believe it's true, really. We pray forgive us not only because we need forgiveness and we remember in each instance we take up this prayer how desperately we have needed forgiveness, but we also remember in saying these words, we are the forgiven ones. We pray this prayer not only because we need forgiveness, but because we forget we've been forgiven. And when we forget... We have been forgiven. We fail to live the forgiveness we have received. When we forget the forgiveness we've been given, we fail to live the forgiveness we receive. Forgiveness is the center of this prayer. It is the way of life for us. It is the central mark of the church. The grace of God in Jesus Christ forming a people who have received that grace and therefore live freely extending the grace of God to one another, to the world. It is the central mark of the church. A community of forgiven and forgiving one, giving ones. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray. Forgive me my sins as I forgive those who've sinned against me. Not the way that he teaches us to pray. He teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The pronoun is plural. And that matters. Because we, in our minds, we want to make this about us as individuals. The prayer begins this way too. The prayer does not start, my Father in heaven. It starts, our Father in heaven. It's the prayer of the people, of the community. What kind of community are we? We are the community of forgiven ones. We believe against everything else uh, to the contrary that the love of God is greater than this broken world this broken community of people and the broken places within all of us. We believe it. We are the community of the forgiven ones. 
And if there's any place in this world where people can see and touch and sense the life of God's extravagant mercy and forgiveness, it's here. You may be asking yourself, why is it that it seems to feel like so often the church is the least forgiving place? Is the least forgiving place. Why is it that people when, who are not a part of the community of the redeemed look at the church that their perception is, I don't care whether it's right or wrong, that their perception is, that's the least forgiving, kind bunch of people? Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Maybe we forget that we've been forgiven, that God's mercy is never-ending. This is not a zero-sum game. There is no risk that God has a limited amount of mercy to give and that it's going to all get used up, and so we have to be careful how we dole it out. That's not what's happening here. His love is eternal. His mercy is never-ending. New every morning. It falls fresh like rain. You are forgiven and therefore freed up, people. Freed up to love and forgive freely. I don't know where you are in the story today or these stories today, but know this. You are loved and forgiven. You are free in that love and forgiveness to let go of whatever or whoever has wronged you. That's what the whole sermon, these two stories, in fact, the sum total of the gospel is. You are loved and forgiven. You are free in that love and forgiveness to let go of whatever and whoever has wronged you. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. If you're here this morning... As we sing, Raymond's going to come and praise team's going to lead us in this next song. And God's going to lead us in the singing of this song deeper into God's own love. I hope you have a sense of that. And if in that moment, it, you know, there's a moment stirring in you to come and, and to ask for someone to pray over you or just to, just to put their arm around you as God's beloved child, then I want to invite you to come and receive that invite you to come and confess the love of God in Jesus Christ if you've never done that before. I want to invite you to the table of the Lord because this song's also going to lead us to the table of the Lord where we're going to gather around that table and we're going to take bread and cup as God's redeemed, forgiven, loved people. And we're going to remember that again at the table with each other so that we might live freely as God's beloved. Let's pay attention to how God, by God's word and God's spirit, stirs and speaks to us this morning as we stand together and sing.